Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. Okay, so to tell you, you are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind or printed paired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. No, it isn't. Alright, getting into it. Right here in... Uh, our country, we've got a couple of things here from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 9, 2023. Schiff meets resistance from left. California withdraws progressive caucus application after some question timing amid Senate campaign by Jennifer Habercorn. Washington. Representative Adam B. Schiff's effort to bolster his progressive credentials in preparation for his statewide bid for outgoing Senator Dianne Feinstein's seat Hit, has hit some resistance on Capitol Hill. On Monday, the Burbank Democrat withdrew from consideration to join a coalition of progressives in California in Congress after his application became divisive among the group's members. Schiff has faced questions about his progressive bona fides, considered uh, a must-have in the, these days for any statewide candidate in California. He applied in January to join the House and Senate Democrats' most liberal group, the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Representative Pramila Jayapal, Democrat of Washington, chair of the caucus, said the timing of Schiff's application as it begins his campaign for Senate against at least two members of the group, Representatives Katie Porter of Irvine and Barbara Lee of Oakland, became an issue. We have two very progressive members who have been in the Progressive Caucus for some time, Jayapal said, referring to Porter and Lee. When Schiff was elected to Congress in 2000, he was a member of the Blue Dog Coalition, a group of Democratic centrists. He left the group several years ago. He is a member of the New Democrat Coalition, which touts economic growth and fiscal responsibility. Several members of Congress are aligned with both the New Democrat Coalition and the Congressional uh, Progressive Caucus. Jayapal declined to speculate about whether Schiff's application, which would have gone before the Progressive Caucus Executive Board and then its full membership, would have been successful. It was great that he recognized that his application would be a divisive thing and I do, uh, to do, and, uh, and he withdrew it. So I appreciate that, Jayapal said. He has a progressive record. His questionnaire was fine. But I think the timing with the Senate race just bring questions around it. Lee is a member of the Progressive Caucus Executive Board. Three other Californians in the group's leadership, Representatives Mark Takano of Riverside, Jared Huffin of San Rafael, and Jimmy Gomez of Los Angeles, have endorsed Schiff. Schiff had been encouraged to join the caucus during the last, uh, the last of Congress, uh, but deterred until the completion of his January 6th committee responsibilities, said his spokeswoman, Lauren French. Adam is proud to be a progressive, French said, after hearing from his colleagues that some were uh, attempting to make his joining the uh, session political, Adam decided to withdraw from consideration until he joins the U.S. Senate. Schiff had, has been criticized by far-left Democrats for parts of his record, including his opposition to Progressive Caucus budget pro proposals and his accepting corporate po political action committee money in the past. He will not accept corporate PAC dollars for his Senate race, his campaign says. Lee has consistently 
uh, had one of the most progressive voting records in the House. The voting records of Porter and Schiff have tracked slightly more closely ideologically, according to Gov GovernorTrack.us. In 2019 and 2020, in rankings of 435 House members, uh, Lee was ranked at 436 for having the most liberal votes in record. Porter was ranked 359 and Schiff was 367. That was Schiff Meets Resistance from Left by Jennifer Habercorn from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, uh, March 9, 2023. And from the same Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 9, 2023, we have this. Panel OKs Garcetti as India Ambassador. Former LMA's confirmation for the post now awaits an uncertain vote before the full Senate by Nolan D. McCaskill. Washington. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee voted Wednesday to advance former Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti's nomination to be ambassador to India. The nomination will now go to the full Senate, though it's unclear whether Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer, Democrat of New York, will schedule a floor vote, and whether Garcetti has enough support to be confirmed. I am honored to be President Biden's nominee for this important post and pleased that the Senate Foreign Relations Committee has once again approved my nomination on a bipartisan vote, Garcetti said in a statement. Biden renominated him in January after his name failed to advance through the Senate last year. Most Republicans on the Foreign Relations Committee opposed Garcetti's nomination Wednesday, a contrast to last year when Garcetti and other nominees sailed through without any stated objections. But two Republicans voted in favor of Garcetti on Wednesday, which committee chair Robert Menendez, Democrat of New Jersey, says bodes well for the former mayor's final confirmation. I would think that he would find a pathway forward on the floor to be supported, Menendez said. It's just a question of getting him time on the floor. Nominations take up time. The committee meeting had been postponed for over a week after Senator Marco Rubio, Republican of Florida, placed a hold on the nomination of Garcetti and others. In a statement announcing his hold, Rubio accused Garcetti of ignoring credible se uh, sexual assault accusations in his prior office and called other nominations before the committee absurd. Garcetti's nomination has been dogged by accusations that he either knew or should have known of, of allegations that his former senior advisor Rick Jacobs was sexually harassing colleagues and making racist comments. Jacobs has denied the allegations, and Garcetti testified at his own December 2021 confirmation hearing that he had never witnessed, nor was it brought to his attention, the behavior that's been alleged. Senator Charles E. Grassley, Republican of Iowa, released a 23-page report last year that found it was extremely unlikely that Garcetti didn't know of Jacobs' alleged uh, behavior. Vulnerable Senate Democrats whose seats are up for re-election in red states in 2024 told the Times last week that they had not looked into the nomination and were unsure how they would vote. But Senator Susan Collins, Republican of Maine, said she was impressed with Garcetti's knowledge of India after the two met privately last week. She remains undecided but left the door open to casting a key swing vote in his favor. Senator Maisie Hirono Democrat of Hawaii has been throwing has thrown her support behind Garcetti. A majority of senators would need to support his nomination to send him to New Delhi as ambassador. 
Senate Democrats have a 51-49 advantage over Republicans. Earlier this week, Federal Communications Commission nominee Gigi Stone withdrew her nomination uh, after centrist De uh, Senator Joe Manchin III, Democrat of West Virginia, announced he would vote against her. Also before the panel Wednesday were Richard Verma, nominee for Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources, Stephanie Sanders Sullivan for Representative to the African Union, Michael Allen Ratney for Ambassador to Saudi Arabia, Gita Rao Gupta for Ambassador at Large on Global Women's Issues, El Felice Gorodo for Alternate U.S. Executive Director of International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, Richard L.A. Weiner for U.S. Director of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and Leopoldo Martinez Nuzzetti for U.S. Executive Director of the Inter-American Development Bank. That was Panel O'Case Garcetti as India Ambassador by Nolan D. McCaskill from the Nation's section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 9, 2023. Time staff writer Dakota Smith contributed to this report. And we have a follow-up article from the Nation's section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, March 10, 2023. Senate could vote on Garcetti as soon as next week. Former L.A. Mayor's chances of being confirmed as U.S. Ambassador to India look to be improving. By Jennifer Habercorn. Washington. Nearly two years after President Biden nominated him to be Ambassador to India, former Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti may finally get a confirmation vote in the Senate. Charles, Senate Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer, Democrat of New York, on Thursday set up the process of holding a vote on Garcetti's nomination as soon as next week, as the former mayor's chances of of confirmation grow increasingly positive. Since Biden nominated him in July 2021, Garcetti's nomination has been stalled over questions about whether he should have known that a top City Hall aide was allegedly sexually harassing colleagues. Several Senate Republicans said they would oppose Garcetti's nomination, and even some Democrats seemed unsure. Garcetti's prospects for confirmation grew after the November midterm elections, in which uh, Democrats boosted their Senate ranks by one vote. In addition, with the House and GOP hands, Senate Democrats are focusing less on legislation and more on approving nominations, including contro controversial ones that will burn up more time on the Senate floor. In recent months, Senate Democrats have argued that India is too important of a country to continue to go without an ambassador. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee on Wednesday advanced Garcetti's nomination to the full Senate. Two Republicans, Senators Todd Young of Indiana and Bill Haggerty of Tennessee, joined Democrats in favor, a good sign for Garcetti's chances on the floor. The Senate could vote on Garcetti as soon as next week by Jennifer Habercorn from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, March 10, 2023. All right, we got this one now. From the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, March 7th, 2023, USC's scientist book sales are halted over plagiarism. At least 95 passages in Dr. David Agus's work resemble published texts available online by Corinne Pertil. The publication of a new book by Dr. David Agus, A-G-U-S, the media-friendly USC oncologist who leads the Lawrence J. Ellison Institute 
for transformative medicine was shaping up to be a high-profile event. Agus promoted the book of Animal Secrets, Nature's Lessons for a Long and Happy Life with appearances on CBS News, where he serves as a medical contributor, and the Howard Stern Show, where he is a frequent guest. He was a frequent guest. Entrepreneur Ariana Huffington hosted a dinner party at her home in his honor. The title hit number one on Amazon's list of top-selling books about animals a week before its March 7 publication. However, a Times investigation found at least 95 separate passages in the book that resemble, sometimes word-for-word, text that originally appeared in other published sources available on the internet. The passages are not credited or acknowledged in the book or its endnotes. The Times contacted Agus, Agus at the book's publisher, Simon & Schuster, with its findings late last week. On Monday, both announced that sales of the book will be suspended immediately pending a rewrite that includes appropriate credit for the passages in question. I was recently made aware that in writing the book of Animal Secrets, we relied upon passages from various sources without attribution, and that we used other authors' words. I want to sincerely apologize to the scientists and writers whose works or words were used or not fully attributed, Agus said in a statement. I take any claims of plagiarism seriously. Agus added that he asked Simon & Schuster to pause the book's publication and the company agreed. Dr. Agus has decided with our full support to uh, recall the book at his own expense until a fully revised and corrected edition can be released, the publisher said in a statement. As a result, Simon & Schuster has ceased distribution of all formats of the book and advised our retail and distribution partners to return copies of the book. The passages in question range in length from a sentence or two to several continuous paragraphs. The sources borrowed from but without attribution include publications such as the New York Times and National Geographic, Science Journals, Wikipedia, and the website of academic institutions. The book also leans heavily on uncredited material from smaller and lesser-known outlets. A section in the book on Queen Ants appears to use several sentences from an Indiana newspaper column by a retired medical writer. Long sections of, the, of a chapter on the cardiac health of giraffes appears to have been lifted from a 2016 blog post on the website of a South African safari company titled The 10 Craziest Facts You Should Know About a Giraffe. The book also takes sentences written or spoken by other scientists and presents them as Agus's original thoughts. At the, at the moment, even in mice, which have been genetically engineered to have the plaques associated with Alzheimer's disease, there are no tangles and very little damage to brain cells. Simon Lovestone, a professor of trans, trans, translational neuroscience at the University of Oxford, said in a 2017 interview with Oxford University's news service about a study he led. This makes it difficult to find new targets for curing the disease, as well as studying how a potential drug can change the disease. But if altered insulin signaling can make an animal more susceptible to Alzheimer's disease, we might be able to produce mice that are a true model of the disease. 
which we can then test to find new treatments. Those sentences appear nearly verbatim in August's book, with no mention of Lovestone or the university's news release. Page 224 of August's book mentions a seminal 2017 study led by a team at the University of Oxford with a footnote citing the research paper. But three pages later, in a passage on the relationship between insulin and Alzheimer's disease, the following sentences appear. Even in mice that have been genetically engineered to have, have the plaques associated with Alzheimer's disease, there are, are no tangles and very little damage to brain cells. This makes it this makes it hard to study how a potential drug can change the disease. We're not about to start experimenting on dolphins in a laboratory setting uh, the way we do with mice. But if altered insulin signaling can make an animal more susceptible to Alzheimer's disease, we might be able to produce mice that are a true model of the disease and test them to find new treatments. Other passages uh, repeat that repeat texts that appear in strikingly similar form in scientific journal articles. In a 2011 paper in the Journal of Pain, the authors wrote, pain acceptance involves accepting what cannot be changed, reducing unsuccessful attempts at eliminating pain, and engaging in valued activities despite pain. Studies have shown that individuals with high levels of pain acceptance, pain acceptance report significantly lower levels of pain, psychological distress, and pain-related disability. Agus's own chapter on pain management includes the following passage, passage on page 272. This entails accepting what cannot be changed, reducing unsuccessful attempts at eliminating pain, and engaging in uh, valued activities despite pain. Multiple studies have proven that over time, individuals with higher levels of pain acceptance, more optimism, tend to report significantly lower levels of pain and pain-related disability. There is no reference to the journal article in the text or its endnotes. Exploring the animal kingdom is something of a departure from Agus's normal research interests, which have received millions of dollars of funding from the National Institutes of Health. He has published scores of academic papers, mostly on cancer. In Animal Secrets, he describes himself as reporting on the work of other scientists researching non-human species. I'm not pitching a tent to which ch chimpanzees in Tanzania are digging through ant, ant colonies to find the long-living queen, for example, he writes. I went out and spoke to the amazing scientists around the world who do these kind of experiments, and what I uncovered was astonishing. In the acknowledgments, he lists 14 scientists who spent time with me for the project, many of whom are quoted in the book, but the book is not always clear on the source or a source of quotes attributed to these figures. Of the Claremont Graduate School professor Paul Zak, who was cited as one of his interviewees, Agus writes on page 286, Oxytocin is, Zak says, the social glue that adheres families, communities, and societies while simultaneously acting as an economic lubricant that enables us to engage in all sorts of transactions. That language about ox oxytocin appeared in a 2010 profile of Zach in a magazine 
fast company, which wrote, It is, Zach says, the social glue that adheres families, communities, and societies, and as such acts as an economic lubricant that enables us to engage in all sorts of transactions. Agus worked on Animal Sequence with writer Kristen Loberg, who is credited in the acknowledgments section as his collaborator. She has not responded to requests to discuss the book. USC's Keck School of Medicine said in a statement that the university takes allegations of plagiarism very seriously and has processes in place to review such matters. We are unable to commit comment further at this time at this given confidential nature of personal matters. A CBS News spokesman said the network is looking into the matter and that Agus has no appearances planned. As a news organization, we take accusations of plagiarism seriously, he said. Representatives of the Ellison Institute have not commented on the book. Barbara Glatt, a forensic plagiarism investigator based in Chicago, reviewed a section on, in Agus's book about blood circulation in giraffes and compared it to the Safari uh, Company's blog post. As Glatt requested, the Times provided only the relevant passage from the book without information on its title or author. The word-for-word -word copying, the similarities in sentence structure, and the organization of entire paragraphs, all without attribution, led her to conclude that plagiarism has occurred. It's egregious, Glatt said in an interview. At a time when artificial intelligence programs can churn out refined text, she was also struck by how low-tech the job appeared to be. This is not at all sophisticated, she said. Elizabeth Bick, B-I-K, Elizabeth Beck is a microbiologist and scientific integrity consultant who specializes in identifying manipulated data and images in scientific research. The book passages she reviewed at the time's request required far less forensic work, she said. It's very bad. The, sample, the examples I'm looking at look like literally copy-paste jobs, said Bick, who described them as patchwork plagiarism. If a person tries to make money by selling a book, you at least would hope it would be original, she said. It shouldn't matter if you are a scientist or a doctor or not. It doesn't matter. You have to credit your sources. And you cannot literally lift text from another person's work without giving credit. That is plagiarism. Agus did not immediately respond to requests for comment directly on the plagiarism allegations. Animal Secrets also echoes sections of books written by celebrity doctors. A paragraph about Harvard paleoanthropologist Daniel E. Lieberman appears nearly verbatim in CNN chief medical correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta's 2021 book, Keep Sharp, Build a Better Brain at Any Age. A description of insulin resistance that runs for nearly a page in Agus's book closely, closely parallels the structure and word choice in a passage of the 2018 best-selling book, Grain Brain, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar, Your Brain Silent Killers, by Dr. David Perlmutter, a frequent TV talk show guest in the 2010s. Animal Secrets is the fourth book Agus has, Agus has written with Loberg, according to her website. Loberg also collaborated on the Gupta and Perlmutter books echoed in Agus's most recent, most recent tome.
Simon & Schuster publishing, published Agus's The End of Illness in 2011, A Short Guide to a Long Life in 2014, and The Lucky Years in 2016. His first two books were New York Times bestsellers, according to the publisher. Animal Secrets is his first publication to discuss the biology of non-human species at length. After medical school at the University of Pennsylvania and a, a residency at Johns Hopkins and a research fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Agus came to Los Angeles in 2000 to join Cedar sinai Medical Center as a prostate cancer specialist. His patients there included the late Viacom executive Sumner Redstone, who donated $35 million to the hospital's prostate cancer uh, center in thanks. He also treated a nephew of Oracle's CEO, Larry Ellison, who met Agus while accompanying his relative to an appointment. Ellison introduced Agus to his close friend Steve Jobs when he was battling pancreatic cancer. Agus wrote in the lucky years that he served as a consultant on the Apple founder's medical team until his death in 2011. In interviews, Agus has credited Jobs and his black turtlenecks for inspiring his own signature uniform of a black crew neck sweater atop a white dress shirt. Agus joined USC in 2009. His friendship with Ellison led to the tech mogul pledging $200 million to create the Ellison Institute, which opened its doors in 2021. Agus 58 is something of a celebrity in his own right and undeniably celebrity adjacent. He is a frequent speaker at the animal meetings of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland and is co-chair of the Global Health Security Consortium, a joint project of Oxford University, the Ellison Institute, and the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Last year, he hosted the docuseries The Checkup with Dr. David Agus on Paramount+, Plus, where he discussed health issues with celebrities such as Oprah Winfrey, Amy Schumer, Ashton Kutcher, and Nick Cannon. In the version of the book that was to have then published Tuesday, the acknowledgement section of Animal Secrets thanks a long list of famous friends, including former Vice President Al Gore, former British Prime Minister Tony Blair, Paramount Global Chairman Shari Redstone, Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff, and CBS News host Gail King. In his statement, Agus committing, committed to producing a new version of the book that is free of plagiarism. This book contains important lessons, messages, and guidance about health that I wanted to convey to the readers. I do not want these mistakes to interfere with that effort, he said. Once again, I apologize. No new publication date is yet scheduled, Simon & Schuster said. That was USC Scientist Book Sales Are Halted Over Plagiarism by Corinne Pertil from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, March 7, 2023. All right, let's go into some entertainment news now from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, March 5th, 2023. Social Anxiety, Toxic Sex, and 90s Guitars. Debut singer-songwriter Blonde Shell plugs into a heritage of strong women artists and delivers bruised yet darkly funny commentaries by Mikhail Wood, pop music critic. Sabrina Teitelbaum has seen every episode of Grey's Anatomy, every episode of House, and every video she can find on TikTok where you try to diagnose a patient's disease 
based on a given set of symptoms and lab results. My algorithm thinks I'm a medical student, said the 25-year-old singer and songwriter who performs as Blonde Shell. I'm fascinated by all that stuff. I love learning about, like, how to properly put on latex surgical gloves, but I'd, really, but I'd be a really bad doctor. Medicine's loss is music's gain, a bruised yet darkly funny set of serrated, hook-riddled guitar rock Blanchot's upcoming self-titled LP is the most impressive debut of 2023 to date. Singing in a cool Gen Z deadpan that occasionally spirals up to a wistful falsetto, LA-based title bomb, T-E-I-T-E-L-B-A-U-M, uh, ponders social anxiety and toxic sex. I think my kink is when you can tell me that you think I'm pretty, she admits in Kiss City amid fuzzy, crisp arrangements that echo 90s classics by the likes of Liz Fair and Belly. The album due April 7 from Partisan Records, five of its nine tracks are already available to stream, makes an immediate place for a bombshell and a young cohort of talented female songwriters. Think Phoebe Bridgers, think Soccer Mommy, think Olivia Rodrigo, expanding Rock's emotional grammar with sophisticated ideas about empathy and vulnerability but it also showcases a distinctive voice shaped by Teitelbaum's Jewish cultural heritage and by her interest in all things medical. Take Sepsis, one of several songs on Blanchelle with the basis in her many hours of amateur research. You read about these stories where someone didn't know anything was wrong. Then they suddenly go to the hospital and two days later they're dead, she says of the dangerous infection response that gives sepsis its title. I was like, hmm, that's kind of like my dating life. The confidence of thrust of the tunes she began posting last June on platforms like Spotify, starting with the hypnotic Olympus, which she says is about the chaos of being 21 or 22, can give the picture of an artist who got into the game knowing precisely what she wanted to say and how to say it. In fact, Teitelbaum had to figure it out. Before Blanchelle, she took a stab at a, at a slicker electronic pop style under the name Baum, eventually rackling up more than 2 million streams of a housey-ish track called F-Boy that dropped in March 2020. Yet the isolation of the early pandemic made her rethink her approach, in part because she was writing mostly by herself at home instead of with pro songwriters as she had been pre-COVID. All that alone time led her to chew over heavy themes of betrayal, addiction, and self-destruction and to rediscover music she loved as a teenager. I was listening to a lot of Hole, getting into the attitude and the relationship to anger, Teitelbaum says over coffee at Highland Park on a recent morning, her curly blonde hair spilling toward a denim jacket over a faded jersey. So often women are told, if you don't get this person's interest, it's because you've done this, this, and this wrong. But a lot of those songwriters in the 90s were like, something's not necessarily wrong with me, something's wrong with you, and go F yourself for treating me this way. Producer Yves Rothman had completed an LP with Titlebomb in her earlier guise at, and remembers getting a call in which she told him she no longer wanted to put out the music. So I asked her what she was working on, and she played me this heart-wrenching acoustic demo of Olympus, said Rothman, Rothman known for his work with Eve, Eve's Tumor and Girlpool. 
It literally floored me, especially compared to what we've been doing. Other friends of Title Bombs agreed, saying, she says, there we're like, finally, you're not trying, an, trying on an outfit. This is just you. Rothman, who went on to produce Blonde Shell, asked her to write more songs in the same vein, which she did. Filtering her confessions and her indignation through a, a sense of humor that Teitelbaum says runs through this whole history of Jewish singer-songwriters going back to Carol King. In Blanchel's Veronica Mars, Teitelbaum distills the fraught gender politics of that early 2000s teen soap. Logan's a dick, I'm learning that's hot, while Joyner offers a vivid snapshot of a damaged life. Thank, think you watched way too much HBO growing up. Now you got one arm cut, and when you eat, and when you eat, you throw up. On the record, she punctuates that line with an exaggerated wretch. Says Title Bomb, shrugging. It's just how we talk about painful things. Title Bomb, who identifies as bisexual, grew up in New York, one of five children, including twin brothers of a hedge fund mogul father. Title Bomb's mom, who died in 2018, wasn't around when she was a kid. She says. Her dad took her to see the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, and Cher. Jersey Boys was a formative musical influence. I saw it on Broadway and was so moved, she says, as were Adele and Amy Winehouse, whose respectively albums 19 and Back to Black, she learned to play on piano from sheet music. She attended the exclusive Dalton School, where she got into The Strokes and The Killers, and where she sang in talent shows like one caught on YouTube, in which she's backed on guitar by Jasper Jarecki, whose father, Andrew Jarecki, directed HBO's The Jinx. Songwriting, she says, became a way to talk about my feelings because I felt like I couldn't end conversation. After high school, she moved to L.A. to study at USC's Thornton School of Music, but dropped out after two years to pursue her short-lived pop project. In interviews she gave as Bomb, she spoke about how the music reflected her queer identity. Does she feel the same about Blonde Shell? That's a hard question to answer because I don't really think of songs being grouped by sexuality, she says. There's all this stuff online, articles about queer artists, playlists of queer artists, and it's uh, complicated because on one hand, people need to be able to go on, be able to go on the internet. Okay, I'm queer, and I want to see other people who are openly singing with joy about their sexuality or about the difficulties of it. But at the same time, every artist is so much more than their sexuality, she adds. There are blonde shell songs where it's in there and songs where it doesn't come up as, doesn't come up as much. It's just part of who I am. Success came quickly for Blonde Shell, whose music set off something of a bidding war last year after a sound cloud link began circulating among a mix of major and indie labels. Zena White, chief operating officer at Partisan, which is also home to Idols and Fontaine's DC, says she and her colleagues typically stay out of those crowded situations. There's a lot of great music and a lot of great artists out there, she explains, but we just couldn't stop listening to Sabrina's songs. Asked what she were as what she's responded to, White says that the first album she owned as a 10-year-old was Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill, which became a gateway drug to all kinds of music for me. 
and I think as an alternative rock artist, the stories that Blanchelle is telling, it's exactly the kind of world experience a, teen, a teenager could benefit from hearing. Teinelbaum, who lives on the east side with her boyfriend and their German Shepherd, just wrapped a month-long tour opening for Suki Waterhouse, that included a stop at the El Rey, where she complimented the tunes from Blanchelle with a cover of the Cranberries' Disappointment. And next month, she'll head to Austin, Texas with her four-piece live band to drum up attention for her album at the annual South by Southwest Festival. Her aspiring real estate baron of a twin brother thinks all of the music stuff I'm doing is hilarious, she said. For Christmas, he was like, can you give me one of your merch hats? Blanchel sells a bucket hat uh, with the band's name rendered in front of the movie Clueless. He wanted to show all his friends. Tidebomb herself is getting acclimated to viewing music as uh, her career. She was later acknowledged she was she was late to acknowledge the necessity of posting her own TikToks. It's cringe, she says, and she finds it strange how people in the industry want her to be professional at the same time that they want her to embody the romance of being an artist. It's like show up on time, don't be nervous, don't be tired, she says, but be a rock star. That was Social Anxiety, Toxic Sex, and 90s Guitars by Michaela Wood, Pop Music Critic, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, March 5th, 2023. All right, and now for a television review. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, March 7, 2023, Mel Brooks makes history. 1981 comedy gets part two with assists from Wanda Sykes, Nick Kroll, among others. Robert Lloyd, television critic. If you don't count the years when he worked as a drummer, a tumbler, and a teenage comic book comic at the Catskills, Mel Brooks began his show business career in television, writing for Sid Caesar at the dawn of the medium. He returned in the mid-1960s to co-create Get Smart, and he is now back again with Hulu's History of the World Part 2, a sequel to this 1981 film, History of the World Part 1. That film, a series of sketches set in the Stone Age, ancient Rome, the Spanish Inquisition, and revolutionary France, is not the one by which he will be best remembered or would likely want to be, but it is the one Brooks movie that suggests a second edition with the possibility built into the title. Given that it is among his lesser films, I was not at all sure what to expect from the series, and though it takes a moment to get up on its legs, once it established its rhymes and breath, I was completely sold. The History of the World Part 2 is both a sequel and a redemption, vulgar, funny, smart, fun, and smart about history and the modern world. It has been made with, and one might guess primarily by, other younger hands, well they would have to be, given that Brooks is 96, but it's recognizably School of Mel with an added air of tribute and celebration. Most notable and most visible among his new collaborators are Ike Barinholtz, Wanda Sykes, and Nick Kroll, who, t who take a number of roles throughout the show's eight episodes. All are credited as executive producers and writers, as is Brooks or American Treasure, uh, or American Treasure Mel Brooks, as he introduces himself. And with mix of short pieces, with mix of short pieces and longer, uh, intercut continu intercut continuing stories, its media and social media parodies, 
It formerly resembles Crowell's Great Crowell Show. Crowell himself is the series' most Brooksian presence, especially in his role as a shtetl purveyor of mud pies, though he also pays homage to Gene Wilder's I'm Hysterical scene from the producers. Brooks, who starred in the movie, maybe a mistake he admits at the top, does not appear on screen here, at least not in his own body, but he narrates in a customary tone of excitement and his voice alone, a cultural memory running back 62 years when he and Carl Reiner first took their 2,000-year-old man routine public, doesn't much, does much to set the stage. Make no mistake, however many minds joined in, this is a Mel Brooks production. The hallmarks of his style are here, historical figures treated in a modern vernacular established with the 2,000-year-old man, disrespect for the lines uh, between stupid and clever, subtle and ridiculous, exuberant musical numbers, the actor's metafictional awareness that they're in a show, and the sense that everybody is in show business, silly puns, a rich and a rich strain of Jewish humor, which is to say humor written not just by Jews, but also by Jews, but also about Jews. There's less of that around than you than you might think, given that, that we run Hollywood. I kid, letter writers. There are fart jokes, pee jokes, and vomit jokes, the last of which I surprise myself relating is the basis of a particularly and funny bit set on D-Day. Some would certainly find that the series blasphemous, given its several takes on Jesus, also an early subject in the, of the 2,000-year-old man in parodies of The Notebook, Peter Jackson's Beatles documentary, Get Back, and a spot on Curb Your Enthusiasm with J.B. Smooth doing a brilliant turn on his Leroy as an Apostle Luke, as the Apostle Luke and Kroll as a Larry David Judas, with Richard Kind as Peter, a grieving Judas by not comping him a ticket for his one-man show, My Father's Galilean, My Mother's Amotable, and I'm in Therapy. Plus, there is a riff on the AD325 Council of Nicaea, N-I-C-E-A, in which the bishops agree to henceforth represent Jesus as white. He's been betrayed by the black actor, J. Ellis, and to blame the Jews for killing him. The man who wrote Springtime for Hitler is not about to soften his brand at 96. For his disciples, it's an opportunity to get in on a bit of that action. Hitler is back in the series on ice after a brief bit from the movie blown out into a longer one. When, where part one was peopled with a contingent of already older gimmick comics, including Henny Youngman, Shecky Green, Jackie Mason, and Jack Carter, as if a table from the Friars Club had one point they just decided to remove itself to a studio backlot, part two teams with faces from a couple of generations of contemporary comedy and comedies. One imagines them getting the message, Mel Brooks, You'll want to be in on this, want to be in on this, and clearing the calendar to make sure they were. Among the sizable cast, its role, its roles larger and smaller are Pamela Adlon, singing and dancing and preaching revolution in 1918 Russia, Danny DeVito as the Romanov Tsar with a famous, with a family out of Beverly Hills, Josh Gad as Shakespeare, the terror of his writer's room, Zahn McLaren, as a Native American soldier in the Civil War, the one in the 1860s, says Brooks, not the one coming up in 2024, with a yen to do stand-up. 
Kumali Kamal Nanjani as the author of the Kama Sutra, originally a cookbook, Rani Chang as Kublal Khan, Zazi Beat as Mary Magdalene, Jack Black as Joseph Stalin, Fred Armisen vlogging a pyramid scheme with actual pyramids in ancient Egypt, Marla Gibbs in a 70s style sitcom with Sykes as Shirley Chisholm, and from Abbott Elementary, Quinta Bronson and Tyler James Williams plus Janelle James among the writing staff. There are more. As popular as it's been across the decades, Brooks' work on its low or high end isn't for everyone. The easily offended need not apply. For the situationally offended, the next good sketch may erase the bad flavor of the last. Part 2 is typically rude, crude, dumb, learned, erudite, and delightful by turns or even all at once and it's perhaps the only television series that would dare or even find occasion to make a joke about a pop vocal group called Bolsheviks to Mensheviks, which is good enough for me and maybe for you. That was Mel Brooks Makes History by Robert Lloyd, television critic, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times Tuesday, March 7, 2023. It's called History of the World Part 2. On Hulu, anytime, rated TVMA may be unsuitable for children under the age of 17. Right now we go to a book review from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times Wednesday, March 8, 2023. Lifestyles of the Rich and Infamous. The Guilty Pleasure Exposé Unscripted Rolls Up the Lurid Saga of Redstone Family by Jordan Reith, R-I-E-F-E. Sex plays an important role in Unscripted, the epic battle of a media empire and the Redstone family legacy, a guilty pleasure expose on the boardroom and bedroom maneuvering between Viacom and CBS. Sometimes it is taken at will by men in charge. To some mainly, uh, mainly men, this sort of behavior was a revelation when hashtag MeToo became the most popular hashtag of 2018. To others, mainly women, not so much. Both will be riveted by the new book. New York Times reporters James B. Stewart and Rachel Abrams weave together court files, interviews, and news stories into a gripping and illuminating account of C-suite shenanigans, C-suite shenanigans and intra-family strife. Entertaining on a gut level, it is populated by those we love to hate, horrible rich people, sleazy, greedy, and driven by lust. Even the most sympathetic of them, Shari Redstone, is a Trump supporter. Her father, media mogul Sumner Redstone, is the book's villain-turned-victim. He went to Harvard on a scholarship. He later attended law school there. An accomplished linguist, he cracked enemy codes during World War II before returning home to Boston and worked for his father. Turning a pair of drive-in movie theaters into multiplexes, a term he invented, Redstone laid the foundation for national amusements, the holding company at the core of an empire that would include Viacom, Paramount, and CBS, which was acquired in 1999 and spun off in 2006 and reacquired in 2019. After divorcing Phyllis Gloria Raphael, his wife of 52 years, Redstone married Paula Fortin. Fortunato in 2002. 
At the same time, he embarked on a string of affairs with women a fraction of his age, on whom he lavished Viacom stock, houses, horses, and millions of dollars. Those he really liked he would put in his will, but if they betrayed him, he would take them out again and make room for the next model or actress. According to the pilots who flew the company jet, he made a habit of harassing women in the passenger's cabinet and then having them fired. Christine Peters, ex-wife of Hollywood producer John Peters, dated him before becoming a longtime platonic friend. She claims he was banned from every restaurant in L.A., recalling an incident in Hawaii in which he threw a steak at, a, at the chef, alleging it was overcooked. When Christine Peters asked him why he was so mean to people, he allegedly replied, I don't care, I'm going to hell anyway. That uh, two that remained in his inner circle were ex-girlfriends ex Manuela Herzer and Sidney Holland. With his speech impaired by strokes, the wheelchair-bound mogul grew isolated. Herzer and Holland lived in his Beverly Park mansion and took over his life. Blocking his family, they convinced him he was abandoned, often leaving him in tears, the book says. In 2014 alone, according to Unscripted, Herzer and Holland ran up more than $3.5 million in charges. Over the course of several years, according to Redstone, they managed to skim roughly $150 million from his fortune. But when Holland was found to have, to have a boyfriend, guiding light actor George Pilgrim, living in an Arizona home paid for by Redstone, the jig was up. Redstone excised Holland from his will and banished her from his home. According to the book, the movie made Herzer sole manipulator of his fortune. But Shari, with the help of household staff and nurses, engineered a coup, rescuing her father and effectively locking Herzer out by revealing her many transgressions. When the family, family with the family happily reunited, Shari turned to reviving pa uh, Paramount. Led by her father's hand-picked successor, Philippe Dalman, the studio had been reporting one disappointing quarter after another. One solution was to remove Dalman in May 2016, then re-emerge Viacom with CBS, which under the stewardship of Les Moonves had become an industry leader. With a board behind him, Moonves was, was resistant to a merger. But cord cutting and the transition to streaming were rapidly making a dinosaur of network television, weakening his hand. Posing a greater threat were persistent rumors about a pending New Yorker article by Ronan Farrow, which dropped in July 2018. Actor Eliana Douglas said Movis forced himself on her. Another, Bobby Phillips, said he did the same to her. Producer Phyllis Golden uh, Gottlieb filed a police report against him, and Dr. Anne L. Peters also claimed she was followed by Moonves. The unscripted authors reported that when CBS Communications Chief Gail Schwartz was told by Peters of Peters' claim by Vanity Fair writer William Cohen, he responded, This doesn't sound like less, claiming that Moonves was a blowjob guy and not a masturbation guy. He might have been basing it on reports that one of Moonves' assistants was on call for whenever the former was required. When urged by Peters to forego his nomination to the CBS board on account of Moonves' behavior, veteran producer Arnold Copelson, Platoon, reportedly said her concerns were trivial, noting, We all did that. 
which might be why it was so easy for Moonves to allegedly lie when confronted by Shari about the claims. Look me in the eyes, he reportedly told her. This is nothing. There is nothing there. Despite all who came forward, Moonves was never charged with a crime. L.A. County prosecutors said the allegations exceeded the statute of limitations, nor was he sued for civility. Was he sued civilly? Stewart won a Pulitzer Prize for explanatory journalism and is the author of ten books, including the 1991 bestseller Den of Thieves about Michael Milken and Ivan Bosky. Abrams is part of the New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning team that broke the Harvey Weinstein story. Together, they paint a lurid portrait of Sumner Redstone's disillusion while meticulously stitching together a day-to-day and sometimes moment-to-moment account of a power struggle. The book features a cast of dozens, adjointly jo- differentiated by the authors, making internecine corporate welfare dis- digestible without dumbing down. Confronted with her father's hostility, he called her a C in front of company executives. Shari also faced down a sexist boardroom that turned a blind eye to allegations against Moonves. Her journey brought her face to face with the rotten truth about corporate governance. CEOs tend to dominate the boards charged with overseeing them. When Sumner Redstone died in August of 2020, his funeral was attended by only family, mainly as a result of COVID-19 pandemic restrictions. Shari reportedly wept furiously at his graveside and, per his request that the Sinatra classic My Way be played, sang the lyrics of her daughter's, of her daughter's phone. Off her daughter's phone. She had prevailed, wrestling control of CBS away from Moonves and assuming the position of chair of Viacom CBS, now Paramount Global. Like this book, the record shows that she took all the blows and it did and did it her way. That was Lifestyles of the Rich and Infamous by Jordan Rife from the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, March 8, 2023. It's called Unscripted, the Epic Battle for a Media Empire and the Redstone Family Legacy by James B. Stewart and Rachel Abrams from Penguin Press Publishing. 416 pages, cost $32. All right, and here is one more from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 9, 2023. Sing Us a Song. Billy Joel returns to play in L.A. the city of his breakthrough single, Piano Man, by Mikhail Wood, pop music critic. Billy Joel says that if he had to do it all over again, he'd unwrite at least 25% of his songs. I've written some real stinkers I wish I could take back, he says, starting with When in Rome from 1989's Stormfront and C'était à toi from 1980's Glass Houses. I don't even speak French," he says of the latter. So I don't get. So I don't know what I was do, uh, what I was doing. Sometimes I get six or seven songs I thought were pretty damn good. Then there'd be a couple of squeeze-outs at the end just to fill up the album. I realize now I shouldn't have done that. Fortunately for Joel, the quality stuff has provided more than enough hits to power his career as one of music's top tour act, touring acts over the last three decades since the, he released his last pop album, River of Dreams, in 1993. This year, between shows at New York's Madison Square Garden, where he's held down a monthly residency since 2014, Joel, 73, is playing at stadiums with Stevie Nicks 
an unlikely pairing given his reputation as a proudly uptight New Yorker and hers as a vibey purveyor of California cool. Yet the run, uh, run of concerts, which begins Friday night at England's SoFi Stadium, is also an opportunity to remember that Joel's career actually got going in Los Angeles, where he wrote his signature song, Piano Man, about his experiences entertaining patrons of the now defunct executive room near the corner of Wilshire Boulevard and Western Avenue. Joel, whose pop currency never quite seems to wane, see the TikTok craze over his latest uh, 70s tune, Zana's Bar, or Olivia Rico's shout-out in her song Deja Vu, called from his home in Florida, where he lives for much of uh, the year with his fourth wife, Alexis Roderick, and their two young daughters. Question. You moved to L.A. in 1972 after your debut album failed to make much noise. Were you excited or reluctant to come here? Answer. I was excited. I'd never lived anywhere else other than uh, Long Island, so I saw L.A. as this great romantic place. I was sort of in my own western. I got to live up in the Malibu Hills for a while, and to me that was like being in the Magnificent Seven. Then I moved to a rental house in Mulholland Drive in Hollywood, very scenic, right over the Hollywood Bowl. But everybody seems to be in the same business I was in. If I wanted a guy to help fix my plumbing, he wasn't really a plumber, he was an actor. And if an electrician came to my house, he was actually a writer. It got to be kind of confusing. Does anybody really do anything here? And this is where New York was having all his financial trouble, and it was going to go down the tubes. There's that famous headline, Ford to New York Drop Dead. When I heard about that, I got my back up. I said, I'm going back home. This isn't my place. Question. What was your repertoire at the executive room? Answer. I didn't really have a pat list. I just played whatever popped into my head at the time, depending on what my what I was drinking. I got free drinks and kind of lubricated myself throughout the night. It was probably a combination of Hoagie Carmichael, the Beatles, and whatever big pop hit there was at the time, me and Mrs. Jones. Did you, uh, Question. Did you take requests? Answer. I did. I was working for tips. So, so was the woman I ended up marrying, Elizabeth Weber, was a cocktail waitress at the bar. She'd worked the room her way, the waitress practicing politics from piano men, and I'd worked the room my way. We had to pay the rent. Question. What might, uh, what might, might you have played at the end of the night if you had too many? Answer. Probably something patriotic. The Star Spangled Banner or Stars and Stripes Forever. I remember there was a fight in the bar. And to calm everybody down, I played a patriotic song, so everybody stood up and saluted the, fa the flag and stopped the fight. I was a hero for a second. Question. What was your attitude toward L.A. after you left? Answer. I was in some ways scornful, but I was also melancholy about leaving. I went from being an, an insignificant nobody to the piano man when I was there. I look at, back to my time in L.A. with a certain amount of romance, almost as if I was an exiled writer living in Paris or something. Question. How long have you known Stevie Nicks? Answer. We met at a Fleetwood Mac gig in San Francisco probably ten years ago. I just got to meet her backstage, but we've never worked together, even though we both kind of hit at the same time. So this would be a completely new thing for me. I'll probably do one of her songs, and she'll probably do one of mine. Question. What songs of hers are you thinking, of, are you thinking about? Answer. That's up to her.
Question. You ever feel lonely as a solo act compared to a band like Fleetwood Mac that has all these deep interpersonal ties? Answer. I did very much enjoy touring with Elton John. It was like I joined something. As a solo artist, it always gives me, me, it's always me, me, me. Gets kind of boring. But when I hooked up with Elton, I got to play his material, which was a hell of a lot of fun. I miss that. Question. What was your favorite Elton John song to play? Answer. Either don't let the sun go down on me or the bitch is back. Digging into somebody else's inspiration is cool, especially when you're playing the piano. Elton's got a lot of gospel in his stuff. A lot of rhythmic piano, almost like rhythm guitar. Mine is more classical based, but there's not many piano players that play, uh, people are aware of in rock and roll. Randy Newman, Bruce Hornsby, Leon Russell, Dr. John, we kind of hang in the same group. Question. In 2018, you told the New York Times that you couldn't see yourself playing Madison Square Garden in five years. Here we are, and you're still doing the MSG gig as well as the tour with Stevie. Answer. I know. It's bizarre. At the end of every tour, I feel like this is it for me. Okay, I'm done. And then some time goes by and it's like, let's go out and play. Question. When the time comes, would you consider a big farewell tour like the one Elton's on? Answer. That was brought up the other day. But I have a disdain for capitalizing on that. Let me threaten that. Let me threaten that it'll be the end and then I'll make a lot of money. I've seen bands so many times announce their farewell tours and they never go away. I've seen a couple of the Who farewells at this point. Question. Christine McVie's passing last year was a grim reminder that a lot of folks from your generation of rock and roll have reached a certain age. In the next 10 years, answer, there's going to be a lot, there's going to be a lot of attrition. I had an idea for a tour of mine. The poster had illustrations of a bunch of dead insects, and the name of the tour is Dropping Like Flies. I said to my agent, look, go ahead and be as grim as you want. We're all aware of it. Question. One wonders if Fleetwood Mac will tour without Christine, as we've seen Seely Dan do without Walter Becker and the Eagles without Glenn Fry. What's your take on a band touring after a key member dies? Answer. Depends who it is. I'd go see the Eagles even without Glenn because their material is so strong. They've been together so long, they're a hard-working band. Question. What did you think of the Rolling Stones' decision to go without Charlie Watts? Answer. The drummer they, they were using, Steve Jordan, he's great. But I wouldn't have wanted to see... But I, but I would have wanted to see Charlie, honestly. I mean, when Bill Wyman left, I sort of felt like this was it for the Stones. But they don't stop. I think it's an English thing. Question. You're one of the few legacy acts that still tours but doesn't put out new music. Has your experience seeing what audiences want to hear, which is to say the old hits, proved that your decision to stop recording was the right one? Answer. Well, I didn't make that decision based on whether it was right or wrong. It just felt like it was time for me to stop writing songs. I didn't have the same motivation anymore. You need inspiration to create new good music, and if you don't have it, don't bother. Get off the treadmill, for Christ's sake. Question. What's your barometer for judging whether a new song is good or bad? Answer. You can always tell, but it just, but also just got to a point where it was getting excruciating for me to write. The enjoyment went out of it. I just read an interesting quote by Hemingway. Uh, someone asked him, why is it so easy for me to read your stuff? And Hemingway said, because it was so gee hard for me to write. 
question. When you're putting together a set list, do you ever think about how your songs, something like Captain Jack, which talks about the junkies and the closet queens, would be considered in the current uh, cultural and political climate? Answer. You mean, are they woke? It crosses my mind. But Captain Jack has gotten really boring to me. The verse is just two chords over and over again. And it's this dreary story of some suburban kid jacking off at home. My mind starts to wander during the song, and so I don't do it even though people want to hear it. Question. Only the good die young is a tough sell. Answer. It's occurred to me recently that I'm trying to talk uh, some poor innocent woman into losing her virginity because of my lust. It's kind of a selfish song. Like, who cares what happens to you? But what about what I want? But on the other hand, it was of its time. It was written in the mid-70s, and I was trying to seduce girls. Why bull about it? Question. You lost something like 50 pounds during the pandemic, right? Answer. Yeah, I wasn't even conscious. I mean, I'm glad I lost the weight because I was getting pretty heavy there, but I'd gained a fair amount of it back. I found what I lost, or it found me. Question. You drink these days? Answer. I stopped a couple of years ago. It wasn't a big AA kick. I just had to... I just got to a point where I'd had enough. I didn't enjoy being completely inebriated, and I probably created more problems in my new life than I needed. Question. There are no inst there's no instinct out to have a drink after a show? Answer. I don't need it now. I used to get off stage and be so wound up and adrenalized that I need something to calm down to go to sleep. But I realized when you're drinking yourself to sleep, you're not really sleeping. You're just passed out. Question. What do you do uh, when you get off stage now? Answer, I go to sleep. It takes all my strength these days just to get through a performance because it's hard work. I leave it all on the stage. Question, who in your life calls you Bill? Answer, everybody does. My wife calls me Bill. My friends call me Bill. That's my name. Billy is a little kid's name. Mrs. Joel, can Billy come out and play? That's what it sounds like to me. But the problem with Bill, Joel, is that there's nothing to it. It's like a doorbell. Question. Anyone call you William? Answer. My wife does from time to time, and I know it's a sign of trouble. Question. When do you... What do you do on a day when you don't have a gig? Answer. I wait around for the kids to come back from school. I love hanging out with my children. They're seven and five now, and they're so much fun and so interesting to me. I get to be a stay-at-home dad, and that's how I enjoy my life these days. Question. When Olivia Rodrigo joined you at MSG last year, you said as you introduced her that your kids like her music. Are you interested in what they're, do what they're into? Answer, very much so. They like all the big artists like Olivia and Taylor Swift, uh, but recently they discovered the Beatles and now they've asked for us to put on the Beatles channel on satellite radio. It's so much fun hearing those early Beatles tunes and watching my kids respond to them. Question. What do you think of Taylor Swift? Answer. Very good, conscious writer. She knows music and she's productive. She's working her ass off. She gets some shots just because she's so popular, which must be tough to deal with. But I have a great deal of respect for her and for other artists from that same age group. They're attuned to the craft of songwriting. They're hearkening back to the Gershwins. Question. Last thing. You recently wrote a letter to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame urging the nominating committee to put the late Warren Zevon on this year's ballot. He made the cut. 
You take pride in that? Answer, well, he was my first vote. Question, if he gets in and the rock and roll asks you, would you like to do the induction? Answer, I'm working this year, but if I'm in the right place at the right time, I would do it. Question, which of his songs would you perform if asked? Answer, Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Love that song. That was Sing Us a Song by Michaela Wood, pop music critic. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 10th, 9th, 2023. All right, now here's something from uprocks.com. And it is. it says, Brett Goldstein has a wildly outside-the-box idea for where Ted Lasso can go in a proposed season four. By Matt Pridge, contributing writer, uh, March 12, 2023. Ted Lasso was supposed to end with its forthcoming third season, which premieres on March 15. But what if it didn't? What if Jason Sudeikis' sem- semi-cockeyed optimist left AFC Richmond, became back in a completely out-of-the-outside-the-box way? What if, as co-star Brett Goldstein recently suggested, he died but didn't disappear? Season 3 ends with the death of some major characters, the show's recent assistant coach Roy Kent and real-life Muppet fanatic said in a recent chat with The Hollywood Reporter, as caught by film. I keep saying, I have said to Jason, I keep saying, I have said to Jason, season 4 could be Ghost Lasso, where we carry on, but Ted Lasso is now haunting the locker rooms and trying to inspire the players from the other side. Goldstein's joking, probably, but it's not a bad idea. Shows never end these days, but having Ted die and come back as a friendly ghost is fitting with the feel-good show, which is able to stay positive while acknowledging and exploring the darker sides of life. Ted would definitely be the kind of spirit who's upbeat even in death. You can watch Sudeikis, Goldstein, and other Ted Lasso cast members talk about the show in the video below. Season 3 begins on March 15th, on Apple TV. That was Brett Goldstein has a wildly out-of-the-box idea for where Ted Lasso can go in a proposed season four by Matt Prigg or Pridge, contributing writer from uprocks.com, March 12, 2023. Alright, and now we go to Jewishjournal.com and we start off with this one. Uh, Jerusalem dresses up its landmarks with fantastical beasts for Purim. Costumer and designer Adi Anna Telezinski takes TML on a tour of the massive installations adorning famous landmarks that have caused quite a stir in the capital. By Sarah Miller from the Media Line, March 8, 2023. To mark the Sears colorful Jewish festival of Purim taking place this week, the Jerusalem municipality invited renowned artist and costume designer Adi Anna Telezinski to address six landmarks, landmark buildings across the city. The municipality of Jerusalem contacted me to make costumes for buildings, Telezinski told the media line during a tour of the installments. Some of them are monsters that are eating buildings, and some of them are monsters that are opposing uh, the buildings from inside and a few of them are birds that are very costumey. Purim is a joyous commemoration of the biblical story of the Book of Esther, which narrates how the eponymous queen of ancient Persia rescued her fellow Jews from mass slaughter at the hands of Haman, the viceroy of her husband, King Ahasuerus. 
often referred to as Jewish Halloween, the holiday involves wearing bright costumes, participating in celebratory parades, and eating the traditional hamantaschen, a triangular pastry filled with dates, chocolate, or poppy seeds. The massive installations went up last week after a months-long creation process that involved many talented designers from Israel and further afield. For this project, I had an illustrator, an industrial designer, and a 3D modeler, and of course the factory where we actually sew it abroad, Telezinski said. While all the designs are eye-catching, perhaps the one that stands out the most is the purple monster on the side of the Beit Ha'am building, which is part of the prestigious Bezalil Academy of Arts and Design, where Telezinski herself studied. This is one designed to be kind of the spirit of the building. When I approach this kind of temporary sculpture, I take into consideration the architecture, she said of the monster. There's a really close relationship between the building's architecture and the design of the creature itself. Telezinski insists the monster is female. Look at those eyelashes. Each decoration has its own unique character, drawing inspiration from the design of the individual buildings and the environment. I take into consideration the history of the building and who is going to see it, and eventually it's something that should be friendly and happy and accessible to everybody from grown-ups to kids, the designer said. The whole process of the design of, those, of these creatures is to take part into consideration, obviously, being very colorful, being family-friendly, being whimsical and humorous and funny and light. The 38-year-old Ukrainian-born designer has achieved great success in her field, but originally studied computer science at Tel Aviv University. She worked in high-tech after graduation, including a brief sojourn in Sydney, Australia, before returning to her studies at Bezalel in order to pursue her first love. Talazinski also designs the costumes for Israel's version of the hit reality show The Masked Singer in which contestants wear intricate, and outland wear intricate and outlandish costumes to hide their identity. She drew a comparison between the process to create the outfits the contestants wear on the program and the installations she produced for Parham. The two design processes are similarly in the sense of the research, she said, paying tribute to the two different teams uh, who play a critical role on the two different projects. Her designs for the show's costumes blend her former profession and a new in the, in, her create, in the creative process. I incorporate technology in the development process of the designs, Telezinski told the media line, in the fabrication with 3D printing, laser cutting, and also in the designs themselves. I make costumes that are fully robotic, she said. We have this character, the spider, and we developed a mechanism with eight legs that is powered by a motor and has a car battery, and it moves like a real spider. The contestant controlled it with a little dial on her little finger. It's animatronics. Other edifices in the capital graced with Telezinski's designs include the headquarters of the Jerusalem Venture Partners, the venture capital fund funded, founded by Israel's most famous entrepreneur, Ariel Margalit. The former home of Shire Zedek Hospital, a listed building that is now home to the Israeli Broadcasting Corporation and the Jerusalem Municipality Complex itself. The latter two installations are of larger, colorful birds standing on the roof. I wanted to pursue some creatures 
I wanted to put some creatures on the rooftops that could communicate with the fact that we are in the open air, Telesinski explained. Maybe they landed from the sky for a little bit of just for just for Purim. That was Jerusalem Dresses Up Its Landmarks with Fantastical Beasts for Purim by Sarah Miller from the Media Line, March 8, 2023. All right, and now here's this one. The day after Israel's judicial reforms, hundreds of thousands of Israelis took to the streets on Saturday night protesting the sweeping judicial reforms that the government recently began to legislate. All the while, the government carries on legislating the reforms seemingly unrattled by the protests. By Karen Sutton from the Media Line, March 9, 2023. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis took to the streets Saturday night, protesting the sweeping judicial reforms that the government recently began to legislate. These demonstrations were held for the ninth consecutive weekend and followed a day of disruption earlier in the week that saw the use of stun grenades and water cannons by police against protesters. All the while, the government carries on legislating the reforms seemingly unrattled by the protests. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his coalition say that changes are necessary for a country where the judicial system has accumulated too much power in recent decades. In their opinion, the Supreme Court too often intervenes in political issues that should be determined by the Knesset, Israel's parliament. The judicial overhaul would give the Knesset the ability to override Supreme Court rulings with a simple majority. Politicians would have, the great, would have greater influence in the appointment of judges and legal advisors to ministers uh, would be political appointees rather than civil servants. In recent years, a heated debate over Netanyahu has divided the country into two opposing camps which are being further polarized by the current discourse on the judicial reforms. Israel's longest-serving premier, Netanyahu, was on trial on several counts of corruption. His supporters say that he is the target of a vindictive opposition that cannot topple him through elections and is looking to do so through the courts. His opponents say his legal status should bar him from running the state, although there was no law denying him that right. After the reforms pass, things will cool down. Attorney Ze'ev Lev, legal counsel for the conservative movement for governability and democracy, said in an interview. Lev told the media line that throughout the many election campaigns that Israel has held in the last 15 years, discourse has always revolved around issues being debated in the courts leading to intense polarization. He cited the Netanyahu trial, the ruling of mandatory, on mandatory military service, and trials of other leading politicians as Supreme Court cases that have been at the center of Israeli political debate. The citizens will not feel anything immediately, but, will, but we will see calmer election campaigns, Lev said. One of the main criticisms that proponents of the reforms direct toward the court is the lack of diversity among judges. Gradually, we will see better representation in the courts, and the decisions on such matters will be in the parliament, and not in the courts, Lev said. People will debate legislation, and the discourse will be mostly at, in the center. Parties will have a greater interest to be in coalitions because they will want to control judge selections, and this will lead to the centralization of politics, and we will see less of the binary split that has characterized the recent years. Detractors see things differently. The new judges will be politically aligned, 
and sitting judges will be incentivized to rule according to the coalition in order to guarantee their promotions, said Dr. Guy Lurie, a research fellow at the Israel Democracy Institute. When political consideration and loyalty become most important, it means the professional considerations become less prominent, and there is concern that the professionalism of new judges will be harmed. This will not happen overnight, but gradually. Proponents of the reform argue that the political appointment of judges is, in fact, an expression of democracy. There's nothing wrong with the public's re uh, representatives choosing the public's judges, said Professor Oded Mudrek, a former Tel Aviv district court judge. The legislatures set the norms and make the laws. That carries more weight than the judicial process. In, the ent in their entirety, the principles of the reform do not harm democratic rule in Israel. Opponents say, set, uh, such as Lurie say that the government is conducting a judicial coup, not reform. They say the plans will significantly undermine Israeli democracy by weakening the courts and giving the ruling coalition absolute authority. The public will see the courts with limited ability to defend its rights, Lurie said. The constitutional protection of freedom of expression, freedom of demonstration, equality, and the right to privacy will be weak because there will be no judicial review on legislation. If the reform passes, the courts will not be able to defend the citizens, he added. According to Mutrick, such fears are unfounded. Those who are scared do not understand the meaning of the reforms, Mudrick said. However, these anxieties will have great meaning and therefore these feelings must not be underestimated. Some of those people who are concerned might pull out their money, emigrate from the country, or not show up for military reserve duty. Netanyahu and Justice Minister and Deputy Prime Minister Yariv Levin may be correct in their desire to reform, but they cannot deal with the snowball effect that these reforms can create and may end up harming the country, he added, calling for them to moderate their, their proposals. It is this snowball effect that could leave Israel's citizenry reeling after the passage of the reforms deeply divided and struggling to find common ground. Those who recognize this threat have called for a dialogue between the sides, but those calls have not been heeded. It seems that the coalition is determined to finish legislating the reforms in the coming weeks. As part of the overall, Simcha Rothman, who chairs the Knesset Constitution, Law and Justice Committee, said that he will promote a law limiting the right to strike. The current Israeli law allows all workers other than security forces to strike. There has been a significant public outcry against the law, which would limit what is seen in the country as a fundamental worker's right. If the right to strike would be disproportionately harmed, the court will not be able to annul such legislation because it will not have the ability to effectively give constitutional protection, protection to, to such rights, Lurie explains. As head of the committee, in which all legal reforms will be discussed, Rothman is seen as the main agent carrying out the government plans. Together with the justice minister, he has become the poster child of the reforms. Those promoting the reforms say that rights will be protected regardless of the judicial overhaul. To fear in advance is unjustified, Lev said. The thought that it is the courts that protect minorities and the parliament harms them is, is baseless. The majority of the Israeli public represented in the parliament is positioned in the center. 
the majority of voters and parties will not stand for the infringement of minority rights, he added, saying that Israeli society has become so polarized in recent years regarding Netanyahu and now the judicial reforms that it has lost sight of common ground. Critics of the reform point to numerous minority rights on the line that could be damaged by the passage of the reforms. We will see a consistent infringement on women's rights should the reforms pass, said Moran Zer Kazenstein, a founder of Bono Alternativa, a feminist group that works to counter discrimination that violence and violence against women. There will be things we will feel immediately. Sir Katzenstein is particularly concerned with amendments to the uh, Judge Selection Committee, which under the current government would likely lead to the appointment of more conservative judges. The current government, which has fewer women in it, will also likely appoint fewer women as judges, she added. An attempt by the ultra-Orthodox Shas Party <clears throat> to introduce a law that would mandate a strict dress code at the Western Wall the holiest uh, Jewish prayer site in Jerusalem was quickly shot down with widespread criticism, not only from the opposition but also by Netanyahu himself. But critics of the judicial reforms say that it is only the courts that can guarantee that discriminatory laws of that sort are prevented from passing. Such laws could be passed in a much wider version, said Zerich Katzenstein. Once the override, clause is passed, the override clause passes, we will have no judicial remedy for this. Any legislation against women could pass without hindrance. In the coalition agreements, the parties agreed to promote legislation that legalizes gender separation in cultural affairs, education institutions, and public services. The proposed reforms will also give more authority to rabbinical courts. Secular Israelis and Jewish organizations, which promote a more pluralistic view of the religion, are concerned that a limitation on judicial review will allow ultra-Orthodox parties to impose a narrower religious agenda on the nation. With elections of frequent occurrence in Israel, the judicial makeup will also change accordingly, albeit gradually. Laws passed under one government could be easily changed by another. The reform will most certainly affect contradicting individual rights and the consideration of a national interest vis-a-vis -vis individual rights, said Mudrick. The balance between rights, values, and interests will be dictated according to the chosen government, and not according to a handful of appointed judges. Despite the calls for, for dialogue from President Isaac Herzog and others, the reforms are being advanced without any pause for genuine discussion with the other side. The coalition may unilaterally decide to make modifications to pacify the opposition, or it may decide to push forward with its original plan. Lack of communication and increasingly inflammatory rhetoric does not bode well for the future of Israel's already polarized society. Just as the reforms themselves will shape the country, the atmosphere around their passage will also likely bear its mark. And that was the day after Israel's judicial reforms by Cameron Seton from the Media Line, March 9, 2023. Right now, here's a story with a new candidate for Congress to replace Adam Schiff and hit, uh, when, when, as he's running for U.S. Senate. And it's somebody pretty well known. From the Jewish, this is from JewishJunk.com, as you know. And uh, this is called Boy Meets Congress, 
actor Ben Savage announced his bid for a U.S. Congress. The 42-year-old actor, best known for starring in the 1990s sitcom Boy Meets World, is running for California's 30th district seat, currently held by Representative Adam B. Schiff, Democrat of Burbank, who is running for United States Senate, by Brian Fishback, March 6, 2023. After months of speculation, actor Ben Savage officially announced a bid for United States Congress today. The 42-year-old actor, best known for starring in the 1990s sitcom Boy Meets World, is running for California's 30th district seat, currently held by Representative Adam B. Schiff, Democrat of Burbank, who is running for United States Senate. I am a proud Californian, union member, and long-term resident of the 3rd District 30, who comes from a family of unwavering service to our country and community, Savage wrote today in an Instagram post to his 1.1 million followers. I firmly believe in standing up for what is right, ensuring equality and expanding opportunities for all. I'm running for Congress because it's time to restore faith in government by offering reasonable, innovative, and compassionate solutions to our country's most pressing issues. And it's time for new and passionate leaders who can help our who can help move our country forward. Leaders who want to see the government operating at maximum capacity, unhindered by political divisions and special interests. Savage's website list lists a number of priorities, among them reforms to pol police-citizen interactions, solving homelessness, reproductive maternity care, affordable housing, renters' rights, investing in jobs, entrepreneurship, and infrastructure, public school funding, trust in government, providing more resources for veterans, and establishing living minimum wage. Having been an actor since he was a child, Savage is fiercely pro-union. As a union member since 1987, I am dedicated to protecting unions and their right to organize and to act on behalf of workers, he said on his website. Savage also said he supports universal health care, capping drug prices, codifying Roe v. Wade, and passing an assault weapons ban. He is opposed to offshore drilling, and there was no comment about foreign affairs at this time. Savage filed the committee Ben Savage for Congress with the Federal Elections Commission on January 18 of this year. Savage is not new to the political arena. While completing a political science degree at Stanford University, Savage was an intern in the office of the late U.S. Senator Arlen Specter of Pennsylvania. At the time Savage interned, Specter was a Republican. In 2009, Specter changed his party affiliation back to Democratic, which he remained through his retirement in 2012. Spectre passed away from Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2012. I truly enjoyed my time in D.C., Savage told the journal. It's a town of passionate and dedicated professionals, and it was thrilling to be working at the center of government. I'm grateful for the people I worked with and the time I spent there. I would be honored to return to Washington, D.C., this time as a member of Congress, to work on behalf of the people of the 30th District. In 2022, Savage ran unsuccessfully for West Hollywood City Council. The vote was quite fractured, with the winner, Lauren Meister, taking 16.47% of the final vote. Savage came in 7th place, with 6.32% of the vote. Born in Chicago in 1980, Savage has lived in Southern California since the mid-80s. At the time, his older brother Fred started in ABC's The Wonder Years from 1988 to 1993. 
Savage himself started in the ABC in ABC's Boy Meets World from 1993 to 2000, and reprised his character Corey Matthews for the reboot Girl Meets World for three seasons starting in 2014. He is a reformed Jew and has been engaged to Tessa Angermeyer since January of 2023. Other candidates currently declared that they are running for California's 30th congressional district seat include former Los Angeles City Attorney Mike Feuer, Democrat, Assemblymember Laura Friedman, Democrat of Glendale, Maybe a Girl, Democrat at Silver Lake, LAUSD board member Nick Melvoin, Democrat, State Senator Anthony Portantino, Democrat of La Cañada Flint Ridge, and West Hollywood Mayor Steppy Shine, Democrat. The 30th includes Los Angeles neighborhoods, Beechwood Canyon, Beverly Grove, Echo Park, Fairfax, Hancock Park, Hollywood, Larchmont, Los Feliz, Miracle Mile, Park La Brea, Silver Lake, and Tahunga. It also includes parts of Burbank, Glendale, a western portion of Pasadena, and Savage's home district of West Hollywood. That was Boy Meets Congress, actor Ben Savage announces bid for U.S. Congress, by Brian Fishman, March 6, 2023. Okay, now let's go to some articles from the columnist section, and we start with this one, Bibby pressured from all sides. When Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer recently led a delegation of Democratic senators on a trip to Israel, the group implored Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to stop the expansion of West Bank settlements and told the Israeli leader that further growth could imperil a future two-state solution that provided for a Palestinian state, by Dan Schnur, March 8, 2023. When Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer recently led a delegation of Democratic senators on a trip to Israel, on a trip to Israel, the group implored Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to stop the expansion of West Bank settlements and told the Israeli leader that further growth could imperil a future two-state solution that provided for a Palestinian state. The group also made it clear to Netanyahu that they felt he should cease his efforts to overhaul the nation's judicial system, reinforcing their belief that such a move would harm Israel's relationship with the U.S. The delegation did not publicize the trip in advance, nor do any press events during their time in Israel, but Schumer's office issued the following statement after the meeting. We had a productive, wide-ranging conversation, and a number of senators raised some important issues directly with Prime Minister Netanyahu. It was not reported whether Netanyahu managed to avoid laughing in the face of his visitors. Schumer is smart enough to know that his group's requests were going to be non-starters with Netanyahu, and so the entire charade may have been for the benefit of left-leaning U.S. audiences that have increasingly soured on the direction of Israel's government. That's also the most likely expl explanation for the unusually low-key nature of the meeting, so as to avoid the appearance of pressuring Netanyahu before his own borders. But it also underscored the growing divergence between public and political attitudes in the two countries and the futility of efforts such as those by Schumer and his colleagues to influence Israel's national leaders. But it's even more important to understand why Netanyahu felt so little pressure to listen to the pleas of his American guests. Because several days after Schumer's delegation left Israel, an even quieter and far more important binational meeting was taking place in Washington between Israeli Minister for Strategic Affairs Ron Dermer and some of President Biden's tough national security advisors. The topic of this conversation was Iran's unprecedented progress toward full nuclear capability. 
and both Biden and Netanyahu know full well that Iran's ability to mount a full-on nuclear attack is far more critical to both Israel's and the U.S.'s future than the amount of housing in the West Bank or the balance of power between Israel's legislative and judicial branches. Biden administration officials believe that it would now only take 12 days to enrich enough weapons-grade uranium for Iran to build one nuclear bomb, although it would still need another one to two years to build a warhead for a ballistic missile. They also believe that Russia is preparing to send military aircraft to Iran in exchange for the missiles they have received for the war in Ukraine, which would make an attack on Iran's nuclear facilities much more difficult. And they know that the American people are in no mood for a second military conflict as the Russia-Ukraine war continues with no end in sight. Add on to all this the precarious state of U.S. relations with key regional influencers Saudi Arabia. And it is clear how much the White House needs Israel to cooperate in any potential confrontation with Iran. Netanyahu has far more political capital than Biden to aggressively push back on the mullahs, uh, both domestically and internationally. And both men understand that geopolitical, re that geopolitical reality. That's why. When Israel announced its new settlement plans last month, the U.S. State Department carefully chose to use measured language such as concern and troubled rather than condemned or outraged to express their disapproval. In the long run, Netanyahu understands that he cannot claim the regional leadership role to which he aspires until he has settled or at least calmed the battles he faces internally. But for now, he knows that when it comes to Iran, Biden needs him more than he needs Biden. So at a time when Netanyahu is facing immense opposition to much of his domestic agenda, he can be secure in the knowledge that Israel's most valuable international partner is not going to push him too hard. That lack of pressure is buying him valuable time. That was Bibi Pressured from All Sides by Dan Schnur, March 8, 2023. Dan Schnur is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, USC, and Pepperdine. Join Dan for his weekly webinar, Politics in the Time of Coronavirus, www.lawac.org, on Tuesdays at 5 p.m. All right, this next one is called the Sundance Yid. It occurred to me that one thing missing from the well-established program is a place for Jewish filmmakers to network and to support one another in making independent films by Marcus J. Fried, March 8, 2023. Going to Sundance is a rite of passage for many Los Angeles filmmakers. All you need is a warm jacket for the freezing temperatures of Park City, Utah, a stylish hat, and a love of film. Sundance can be expensive, so it also helps if your winter coat has deep pocketfuls of disposable income. It occurred to me that one thing missing from the well-established program is a place for Jewish filmmakers to network and to support one another in making independent films. I set up a bunch of a brunch event and called it the Jewish Filmmakers Network, although a friend of mine said the Jewish Filmmakers Network isn't that Hollywood? The last decade has seen a regular Jewish presence at Sundance. In 2009, a Sundance, Sundance Shabbat dinner was created by Rabbi Mendel Schwartz of LA's High Center. The event is now called Shabbat Lounge and is produced by Shabbat Tent, led by Rabbi Yonah and Rachel Bookstein, who stage it in partnership with the High Center and United Jewish Federation of Utah.
Shabbat tent is a regularly fixture, a regular fixture at music festivals such as Coachella, and the Jewish space is subtitled as Oasis of Chill. The Shabbat Lounge at Sundance is a great space for hot food and a toasty Jewish escape from Utah's sub-zero chill. Hundreds of people attended Shabbat Lounge programs during the weekend and my event was the finale. I was hoping we'd get 40 people since that was all that the space allowed, but in the end, we had standing room only with people on the balcony and stairs all cramming in to be a part of the conversation. We had bagels flowing in from New York, so even if they didn't get a chair, at least they get locks and cream cheese. I'm part of an independent film network called We Make Movies, and I want to bring the ethos to start a uh, community of independent Jewish filmmakers. The approach of We Make Movies is to help you make the movies you want to see without waiting for the coveted green light that the film industry bestows on a few lucky people. Every summer, we hold the We Make Movies International Film Festival and recently ran a contest to give away three grants of $25,000 to help people make their films. At the Jewish Filmmakers Network brunch, we staged a mini pitch fest with the aim of encouraging collaborations between attendees. One of the We Make Movies values is helping the community and is helping community is helping yourself. In the, in the great Jewish tradition of matchmaking, they were artistic shadukes to, to be made. One aim for the Jewish Filmmakers Network is to create com a community where we can pool resources and help each other create our films. Sundance Festival was a great place to launch the initiative and Shabbat Lounge was the perfect host. I invited participants to introduce themselves to the group, introduce their film project, and ask for what they want. If someone has the solution to someone else's problem, then we benefit. We all benefit because it increases the chances of getting the movie made. The first person to stand up was a non-Jewish black gentleman who asked, how can I be an ally to Jewish filmmakers? One person responded that by being here and asking the question, you already are a great ally. A female filmmaker was looking for funding for a film about abortion based on personal experience. An actress-producer was looking to connect with other Jewish filmmakers. An Israeli director wanted feedback on a project about the ad adventures of a cursed underwater rabbi, a kind of fiddler on the roof meets Aquaman. Another filmmaker was looking to access an unaffordable location for his independent movie. I asked the crowd if there were any directors or of photography or camera operators among them and invited the filmmaker to speak with them afterward to get advice on creating ways to get the shot he wanted on a, on a minimal budget. It can be challenging for artists who have spent many years learning their craft but never achieved that big break. Many people drop out of along the way. As one of my drama school teachers put it, it is a war of attrition. The majority of people move on to more conventional lifestyles and leave the dream behind. But what can you do if the dream is, still holds on to you? The easy answer is create your own opportunities and hire yourself. The cost of filmmaking is lower than ever before, and our focus is to create art without excuses. At the start of my acting career, I decided to write and produce my own plays. So far, I've performed, performed them in 18 countries. These days, I'm writing and acting in my own movies, and I continue to appreciate the power of collaboration. 
During the last few months, I've filmed two romantic comedies on location in Los Angeles, and both are made stronger with the help of the community. I've benefited tremendously through joining forces with others and want to continue to bring this empowerment to the Jewish community. Some people lament that Sundance has irrevocably changed from its time as a bootstrapping startup festival in 1978 as it now hosts a variety of exclusive VIP parties, has corporate sponsors like Chase and Acura, is the place where major film distribution deals are made. But unlike the late 1970s, there are now scores of independent film festivals where you can get your movie screened. There are also over 50 international film Jewish film festivals, and we hope that the Jewish Filmmakers Network launch event, launch event has helped some people accelerate their projects. Sundance is full of ambition, but many artists feel that they are knocking on locked doors or stooping below glass ceilings. But this is America. This is 2023, and this really is a time of great opportunity. Directors want to direct, writers want to write, producers want to produce, and actors want to act. We can be stronger and when we band together, create more leverage through partnerships, and get our movies made. Lights, camera, traction. That was the Sundance Yid by Marcus J. Fried, March 8, 2023. And Marcus J. Fried is an actor, author, filmmaker, and marketing consultant. He is a submissions judge for the We Make Movies International Film Festival, www.marcusjfried.com, and on social at Marcus J. Fried. All right, and now here is something called, Have You Heard of the Jewish Joan of Arc? I want to share with readers the incredible story of a teenager named Solika Hachuel, also known as Sol Hatsidaka, the Righteous Soul, or Lala Sulike, Holy Lady Sulika, by Tebi Raphael, March 8, 2023. Seven months ago, I spent Shabbat morning at a Los Angeles synagogue filled with Moroccan Jews. I was intrigued to meet a lovely young woman who first, whose first name I had never heard before, Solika. On the walk home, I asked my friend David Elfersi, who was born in Casablanca, about this unique name. You've never heard of Lala Solika? He asked incredulously, pronouncing the name Sulika. I soon learned that nearly every Moroccan Jew, whether in Morocco, France, Israel, or the United States, knows the name and legacy of Solika, the 19th century Jewish Joan of Arc whom few outside of Morocco had ever heard. On the heels of Purim, which celebrates another courageous female heroine, Queen Esther, and in honor of International Women's Day, March 8, I want to share with readers the incredible story of a teenager named Solika Hatshuel, also known as Sol Hatsadika, the Righteous Soul, or Lala Sudik, Sol Solika, Holy Lady Solika. Solika was born in the northern Moroccan city of Tangiers in 1817, the daughter of Haim, a merchant, and Simha, a homemaker. Her father was known for hosting Talmudic study groups in his home, and this seems to have had a deep effect on his daughter. Solika identified strongly with being a Jew. There was something different about Solika. Among the Jews of Tangiers, she was known to be strikingly beautiful but also modest and renowned for her acts of hased or kindness. 
the 19th century Jewish explorer Israel Benjamin Joseph wrote of Sulika, never had the sun of Africa shone on more perfect beauty. But according to Joseph, her jealous neighbors were apt to complain, it is a sin that such a pearl be in the possession of the Jews, and it would be a crime to leave them such a jewel. According to one account, after a bitter fight with her mother, the teenager sought comfort in the courtyard of a young devout Muslim woman named Tara de Mesudi, who was Salika's friend and neighbor. Tara de Mesudi was so jealous of the beautiful Jewish teenager that she falsely claimed that she had converted Salika to Islam, but that Salika now wished to return to Judaism. This account is offered by a Christian scholar named Eugenio Maria Romero, who claimed he interviewed those who knew Solika, including her parents, for his 1837 book, El Martirio de la Joven Hachuel o la Heroina Hebrea, The Martyrdom of the Young Hachuel or the Hebrew Heroine. Another account claims that a wealthy Muslim boy, also a neighbor, wanted to marry Solika and that his family threatened her if she would not convert to Islam in order to marry him. When Soliga rejected him, the boy accused her of having converted to Islam only to renounce it, a crime punishable by death. Whether it was her friend or a desirous boy who accused Soliga of ap ap apostasy, that single false accusation unleashed a deluge of devastation. Soliga hid in the home of a friend, but when soldiers threatened to take her mother away, she turned herself into the authorities. The teenager knelt before the Pasha governor at court who promised her that as a reward for conversion to Islam, she would receive gold, silk, and marriage to a desirable young man. But in his book, which was written only three years after the incident, Romero claims that the governor warned Salika of dire consequences if she did not convert. I will load you with chains, said the Pasha. I will have you torn apart piecemeal by wild beasts. You shall not see the light of day. You shall perish of hunger and experience the rigor of my vengeance and indignation in having provoked the anger of the prophet. Incredibly, Salika responded, I will patiently bear the weight of your chains. I will give my limbs to be torn apart piecemeal by wild beasts. I will renounce forever the light of day. I will perish of hunger. And when all of the evils of life are accumulated on me by your orders, I will smile at your indignation and the anger of your prophet since neither he nor you have been uh, able to overcome a weak female. It is clear that heaven is not auspicious to my proselytes to your faith. Flabbergasted, the Pasha ordered Salika to be held in a dark dungeon with an iron collar around her neck and chains around her wrists and feet. He then sent her to the town of Fez, where the matter of the Jewish girl fell into the hands of the Sultan himself. For nearly a week, Solika was dragged barefoot behind a mule-drawn cart from Tangiers to Fez. In Fez, the Sultan suddenly found himself with a potentially explosive problem. Like other North African countries, Morocco was becoming more susceptible to invading Western powers. Four years earlier, in 1830, Francis Napoleon III had conquered Algeria, and now the ruler was threatening Morocco. France would eventually begin a campaign of conquest against Morocco in 1907, and the country would become a French pro protectorate in 1912. 
the Sultan knew well that Moroccan public opinion was a powerful keg when it came to preceptions of his leadership as weak or cowering to external pressure. Pardoning a Jewish girl who had been accused of apostasy and insulting Islam, he surmised, would likely set up a whole upscale would likely set up a whole scale uprising. But unlike other Arab countries, Morocco has mostly provided a safe environment for its Jewish population, and Jews there lived under the Sultan's protection. He felt a personal responsibility to protect the girl, but as Sultan, he knew the lay of the land better than anyone else. Rather than decide Salika's fate himself, the Sultan deferred the task to the Islamic court. I understand the Sultan's real concerns over a violent uprising, but I believe he missed a tremendous chance to act with merciful leadership. By outsourcing, outsourcing Solika's case to the Qadi, the judge of a Sharia court, the Sultan placed Solika's fate into the hands of some of the most fanatic men in the land, a judge and a court who applied the Quran to the letter. Not surprisingly, the court informed Jewish sages in Fez that if Solika did not convert, she would be executed and the greater Jewish community would be at risk. While Solika was in Fez, even the Sultan's son is said to have been in awe of her beauty. He also asked her to convert and marry him. She refused. The Hahamim, learned Jewish men of Fez, entreated Solika to comply, but she would not forgo her Jewish faith. Some believe that as much as the Hahamim were worried for her safety and that of the Jewish population, they rejoiced in their hearts over her unbelievable dedication to Judaism. The Islamic judge ordered the Hahamim to obtain a false confession from the girl that she had converted to Islam but sought to return to Judaism. What happened next is one of the most powerful but little-known events in modern Jewish history. Next week I'll share the conclusion of Salika's story and the amazing effects that one teenager's courage has had on a Jewish population for nearly 200 years. If you're tempted to Google the outcome, don't. This is a story that merits a more detailed and soulful telling rather than a mindless click. And that's the beauty of the reader-columnist relationship. We are moved together, and we learn together. See you next week. And that was Have You Heard of the Jewish Joan of Arc? by Tabe Raphael for, a Jew for March 8, 2023. And Tabe Raphael is an award-winning LA-based writer, speaker, and civic action activist. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Tebby Raphael. Let's fit in one more here. Leaning into the Jewish mom stereotype. If your kids expect a lot from you, it isn't isn't it okay to expect a lot from them? By Dr. Tal Lead, March 8, 2023. As a Jewish woman, mother, and psychologist, I have heard the Jewish mom stereotype be used on many, many occasions. Apart from my own two daughters, a lot of my clients have talked about conflicts associated with having a Jewish mother figure in their life, whether it be a biological parent or not. During sessions, the two descriptive words that come up most often are demanding and overbearing. In some instances, the conflict revolves around education and the burden they feel placed on them to achieve future vocational success demanding. In other instances, the conflict revolves around personal boundaries and the leash that they feel has gotten too tight overbearing. 
there's a reason the Jewish mother is depicted as a sort of comic book Wonder Woman character. She will go to great lengths to protect her children, wiping out anything or anyone obstructing their path and coming to their aid at even the slightest hurdle. In some cases, this protector trait is incredibly useful for her children's future success, but in other words, not so much. This is because the over-emotional guidance or hand-holding can eventually become a developmental issue for a child who needs more auto autonomy. In an effort to safeguard a child's bright future, the mother or mother figure may have inadvertently caused her child more stress, embarrassment, and an unnecessary over-reliance on them. But I'm here to tell you that being a Jewish mother doesn't have to tip the scale in a negative direction. You are allowed to be demanding and overbearing at the appropriate times. You're allowed to have high expectations. You're not just allowed, but you are required to care. Yes, sometimes, even, uh, we, can, sometimes we care to a greater extent than our children would like. My kids are adults now, but from time to time, they, st they still tell me things like, Ima, mom in Hebrew, you need to stop thinking ahead for us. Yet they also call me at any time of day they please with co uh, complaints, requests, and life advice. They know I'll pick up when I can. They know I'm always thinking of them, even if sometimes, even if sometimes it's a bit too much. So here's my question for you. If your kids expect a lot from you, isn't it okay to expect a lot from them? Life is about a balance. And after all, we're trying to raise balanced kids. In the world of parenting, structure, aside from love, is one of the most important pillars of raising well-balanced kids. And although we wish it were easier to build structure, structure is a tight web of daily, weekly, and yearly expectations or good habits stacked on top of each other. This is why quality parenting is hard work. It's tough, but so are Jewish mothers. You see, there's nothing inherently wrong about having high expectations as a Jewish mother. As long as they're not unrealistic, high expectations will nudge your children in the direction of flourishing. But in order for that to happen without setting your kids back emotionally, you have to hold yourself to the same high standard. Ironically, ironically there is perhaps nobody better equipped to do so than the demanding Jewish mother herself. So I say it's time to lean into the Jewish mom stereotype. Just as you demand the best out of your children, demand the best out of yourself. Find ways to practice being a more balanced parent, pushing your kids when appropriate and then pulling back to give them the space when necessary. It's never easy to course uh, correct, but the practice will help you raise more grateful, resilient, and happy children. In psychology, this is what we call moving from a fixed mindset that your abilities are set to a growth mindset that your abilities can develop. Over the years, I've explained the definition of the Jewish mother from something negative and fixed to something positive and growing. Being a Jewish mom can mean a lot of things, and I hope you can accept my new interpretation with open arms. At the end of the day, your children don't need Wonder Woman, although I'm sure they'd be pleased to be Gal Gadot. They need their mom, their Jewish mom. That was Leaning into the Jewish Mom Stereotype by Dr. Tal Lead, March 8, 2023. Dr. Tal Lead has over 25 years of clinical experience and runs her own private practice in Southern California. Let's conclude with some ads from the Marketplace section of JewishJournal.com. 
as usual to reserve your market uh, place ad space call 213-368-1661 ad space reservation and material deadlines are 12 p.m on thursdays and we do this one right here hillside mortuary providing compassionate and professional mortuary services to families of all faiths hillside is built upon a foundation of relationships enabling us to assist in coordinating and expediting arrangements. www.hillsidememorial.org slash advanced planning. For more information about our online floral service, please visit www.hillsidememorial.org slash floral service. Hillside Memorial Park and Mortuary, LAFD number 1358. And folks, it looks like we are just about to come to a, uh, the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.